Welcome to Real Issues, Real Conversations, a podcast of Ohio Humanities. I'm Rachel Hopkin, and today I'm talking with writer Mindy McGuinness about her book Heroin, which was published in March of 2019. Heroin has been described by one reviewer as a compassionate, compelling, and terrifying story about a high school softball player's addiction to opioids. Mindy McGuinness is Ohio born and bred, and besides being the author of numerous books, she's also a ninth generation farmer. When I met Mindy at her small holding in central Ohio, I began by asking her to introduce herself. I am Mindy McGuinness. I am an author of, I believe it's eight now published books that are for teens, and most of them are actually set in Ohio because of the fact that I grew up in Ohio, I'm from Ohio, I live here now, and I really feel that the Midwest isn't usually appropriately represented in um, fiction and movies and television, so I try to kind of bring some realism and uh, maybe some less insulting scenarios to the Midwest (laughs) in uh, fiction. During our conversation, Mindy and I were joined by at least one dog and three cats, including Gilly, whose purring is present pretty much throughout this podcast. Can you purr into the microphone? While Gilly was settling herself on Mindy's lap, I asked Mindy what had made her decide to write for teenagers specifically. I was originally writing for adults, and I wasn't doing a very good job of it. I had never had any classes, and I don't think it's necessary to be taught how to write fiction, but you do have to write some bad fiction first. So I was writing for adults and finished, I believe, two novels while I was in college, both of them really bad. Graduated from college, and I got a job at the high school that I graduated from, which is Cardington in central Ohio. It's about 20 minutes north of Delaware. And I was working in the library there at the high school. And at that time, Twilight had just come out and it had exploded and the young adult market was really changing and kind of blowing up. And I had always thought of young adult as being, I guess, a little simple, a little more of morality tales, because that's what it was when I was that age. And so when I began working in the high school, I saw how young adult was changing and how the kids were not being insulted anymore by what they were being handed. And the fiction was more layered. It was more honest. It was more truthful. It wasn't just this is how you should live your life. It was more like this is how your life actually is. And I was really impressed by that. And I thought, oh, maybe I should give a shot at writing this because I am with the teens 40 hours a week. And so I decided to give YA a shot. And I wrote Not a Drop to Drink, which is uh, a post-apocalyptic survival story about a world without any drinkable water. And that was my first book to get picked up. So for Not a Drop to Drink, you must have done a lot of research about the environment. And today we're talking about your most recent book, which is Heroin, which I gather you also did a lot of research for because it's grounded in the opiate addiction crisis of which Ohio seems to be an epicenter, unfortunately. So what attracts you to these big issue themes? I think what attracts me to the darker stories is that they are nuanced and there is a gray area. People 
like to think of addicts as the homeless people in the parking lot or, you know, someone covered in tattoos and begging on the corner. And it's not true. I was at a librarian conference and a librarian came up to me, you know, young, clean cut, very much what you would think of when you think of a librarian. And she said, thank you for writing the book. You know, I'm an addict, not just recovering like she is. She's currently using heroin. And that's something that doesn't fit into the idea of what a librarian is, certainly, or an addict. And so that's the kind of picture that is harder to take. And it's harder to pull apart, harder to understand, and harder to read. And that's the kind of stuff that I am interested in. I don't want to write a simple story. And so the opioid addiction specifically, I became interested after visiting a school where a student had OD'd and it was not the first. And there were students there that were leaving for a funeral. And one of the girls told me that she had invested in good funeral clothes because there were so many ODs in their high school that she knew she'd be wearing it often. That's terrible. Where yeah. was this? Uh, it was in Southern Ohio. Okay. And it was just such a moment for me and so impactful. And I drove home thinking about that, obviously. And I also, at the same time, heroin is about a female athlete, a softball player who was injured right before her senior year, and she has to go through rehabilitation in order to be ready to play in her spring season. And she is given oxy to get through rehab and has to deal with a ton of physical pain. And that is a really common story. The oxy that Mindy just mentioned is oxycodone, also known as oxycontin. It's an opioid analgesic which is available on prescription. And it's a easy to get addicted to, not only because it takes the pain away, but because it gives you a huge dopamine rush. It makes you feel good. And when you've found a pill that you can take that makes everything fine, that's attractive. So the book actually starts with a trigger warning because you're saying, or the publisher is saying, that within the book there are depictions of how nice taking drugs can be. Uh, was the trigger warning your idea, or the publisher's idea, or how did that come about? I definitely wanted a trigger warning on this one simply because I know addicts, I know how strong the pull is, and so I did not want anyone thinking, like I used to think, this is written for teens, it's not going to have anything that honest or that powerful in it, and then to make someone go, oh yeah, I remember how good that felt, I need to go do that right now. I would never, ever want to be the reason why someone relapsed. The protagonist of Heroin is called Mickey Catlin, and she's also the first person narrator of the book. When we encounter Mickey in Heroin's opening chapter, it's a bitterly cold winter's night, and Mickey's out driving in her car with her best friend Carolina beside her. Carolina is a fellow softball player, and the two athletes are chatting about boys and sports and so on. Here's an excerpt from the audiobook version of Heroin, which comes courtesy of Harper Audio. It's read by Brittany Presley. I'm talking to Carolina about the guy she likes, picking apart everything he said to her, every inch of body language that has been displayed for her benefit. I'm breaking it down for her because while she's beautiful and smart and tough and perfect, she's also the only Puerto Rican for about 100 miles and doesn't think it's possible that the quarterback would be into her instead of some white girl. Last week, he said something funny at lunch, and everybody busted out laughing. 
but you were the one he looked at, I tell Carolina. So, she says, hands curled around the pizza boxes on her lap. So, out of our entire table of football players and cheerleaders, Aaron looks at the softball pitcher to see if she thinks he's funny, I say, breaking for a turn that can be nasty on freezing nights, like this one. He is funny, she concedes, spinning her class ring on her finger. I think I even saw your lips twitch. Maybe, I say, but I'm not the one he likes. People like you, Carolina insists, an old conversation that we've been having ever since I befriended the only other girl at recess who didn't have someone to play with. We were two loners then. Her the kid whose skin wasn't the same color as everyone else's. Me the one who never knew quite what to say, hesitating a little too long whenever I was asked to join in. The novelty of Carolina's race wore off, her smile overcoming any reservation the other kids had. Me? I don't smile much. Like is a strong word, I tell her. Fine, she says, reaching for her phone to change the music. But they're definitely in awe of you, and that counts for something. That's no lie. My classmates have been in awe of me ever since a badly aimed kickball sent our gym teacher to his knees in second grade. But that admiration never warmed into friendship. Just high fives and first pick in gym class. I'll take it. The team loves you. Carolina isn't letting it go. The team does love me. We've spent our summers together. Sweat-soaked hair tucked behind our ears, wet towels on our necks when the Ohio afternoons shot past 100 degrees. We grew up that way. Backwoods girls knocking down bigger, and supposedly better, teams until even the city paper started sending out reporters to cover us. Dirty kids with Capri Suns in our hands, arms draped over each other's shoulders. We love each other, yeah. Even if most of the time they don't know what to make of their catcher, and our conversations tend to focus on one thing only. Maybe if you tried talking to them about something other than softball, Carolina wonders aloud, her thoughts following mine like always. I consider that for a second. I guess I could talk to them about basketball. My friend busts out laughing. Ay, Dios mío, she says, wiping tears from her eyes. I'll know you're putting effort into it when you start talking to them about volleyball. Volleyball, I say, rolling my eyes, which brings another peal of laughter from Carolina, her head thrown back, neck highlighted way too much by the oncoming car that's briding us. I flick my lights at them. Then, I'm not driving a car anymore. I'm lying in a field surrounded by frost and glass and corn stubble and the constant tick, tick, tick of a motor cooling. I stare at the sky, trying to figure out what just happened. There's been a car accident, and I was in it. That's the accident which precipitates Mickey's need for pain medication, which then leads her into the cycle of addiction. I confessed to Mindy that I had not at all been looking forward to reading heroin. I wasn't interested in YA fiction or in high school athletics or in drug addiction. However, the book completely confounded my expectations. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. I mean, it was incredibly moving in parts. So the protagonist is called Mickey Catalan and she has in particular three friends who are fellow addicts who she associates with as part of this kind of addiction 
ritual, friendship, camaraderie. And towards the end, the mother says, those people were never your friends because if they had been your friends, they wouldn't have let you do it. But they were her friends mm -hmm. and they weren't in a situation to stop her. I mean, they were in it themselves and they all come to it for different reasons. So Mickey comes to it because she has been injured and it snowballs. And there's another girl, Josie, who comes to it because she was bored. But she's not portrayed as this kind of one-dimensional thrill seeker. She's a, you know, a really intelligent girl and she's going to go to learn how to be a pharmacist and she's got a fantastic brain. I just thought it was... And then the dealers are different as well. One's... No, let me stop rabbiting on about it because okay. this is really for you to say. But how did you go about the research? Well, at first I did a lot of reading because... It is not a culture I'm familiar with. So I did a lot of reading. I read about drug culture, but I also read about some of the ways that drugs are portrayed that aren't necessarily true. I read a lot, of course, about the opioid crisis, and I've read just so much. I mean, pages upon pages upon pages. And also reading about addiction just as a theory, because drugs, of course, are only one form of addiction. You can be addicted to many things. Most of us do have an addiction. I am addicted to sugar. I crave it, I go after it, I need it, I want it. If I have a little bit of sugar, I go for more to the point that I will almost make myself sick. When I'm talking to teenagers, I talk to them about Doritos because when you're eating Doritos, you can't eat just one Dorito. And that's because it has such this high salt content and it hits your brain and it actually gives your brain a little boost. And your brain says, okay, I want more. I can certainly identify with this. Although in my case, my drug of choice is full fat plain yogurt. At some point during our conversation, Mindy mentioned a pharmaceutical company in a way that suggested this company had played an important role in the opioid crisis. The name of the company was Purdue Pharma, and I'd not heard of it prior to our conversation, so I asked Mindy to explain its significance to me. So Purdue Pharma is the company that really got Oxycontin out onto the market. And if you read the book Dreamland by Sam Quinones, it is mostly about Purdue Pharma and the aggressive marketing of Oxycontin. And the I believe it was the early 90s is when it began, but they aggressively marketed it and also were not entirely clear about the addictive properties and probably had not been thoroughly methodical in their research. And so there are many, many, many questions about how this was allowed to happen. And Dreamland does an excellent job of breaking down the beginning and how this came to be. You used the word epicenter earlier when talking about Ohio, and it's true. And there are a lot of different reasons for that. A lot of it dealing with, uh, you know, coal miners, people in jobs that are mostly physical labor, people that their bodies are worn down, they're getting injured, and so they are prescribed pain medication. Also, just depression, lots of economic depression that then leads to struggles in the home and financial issues and depression within the home and all of these things that, quite frankly, this little pill can fix. And that is something that Dreamland is an amazing book. Everyone should read it to really understand how this has um, 
ballooned into what it has become. Was there anything in that background research that particularly surprised you? One of the things that definitely surprised me was one of the first waves of addiction that they saw was in the elderly, people that had Medicare, because they had insurance. And if they had pain, you know, they're older people, they have insurance, they have pain. And so they would be given Oxycontin. And they also don't have usually much of an income. And so I thought it was very interesting that some of the early dealers were actually the elderly because they needed money. They had free pills and some of them not necessarily even liked the pills, but they could get a prescription written. And then you could flip a pill for a dollar a milligram. So I, I thought that was such an interesting idea. And so I incorporated it into the book because it was so against what you think of when you think about someone selling you Oxy and it, it might be a grandma. So that was your research into the broader background of the drug crisis. How did you start researching individual addict stories? I love the internet. It is a fascinating yet horrible place. And I would go online and there would actually be message boards for addicts. And I would just lurk and read and they would be telling their stories and it was active addicts I mean occasionally there would be a recovered person but most of the time these were people that were actively using and it was interesting to me because they were giving each other aid and support in the sense that if someone was on a work trip and they were in Pittsburgh and they were like hey where can I get some heroin you know, someone would say, oh, well, go here. But then there were also more than that. There were so many posts where people had just bought something and they weren't sure. They didn't think it looked safe. They would take a picture and they would post it and someone would be like, nope, don't do that. You can tell that it's been cut this many times or whatever. You need to throw that away and make sure that your pets don't get into the trash. And just like helping each other. And without fail, every single time, because there are so many different ways to do Oxy, but then also to do heroin and uh, actually shooting up being the last step, the most intense. And so many times people that had been crushing or snorting or smoking, they would say, it's not doing it for me anymore. I'm ready to shoot up. And without fail, every single person that was an IV user would say, don't do it. Because once you do, you will never go back and it will kill you. It will kill you. And it was just... <laughs> So sad, yet like weirdly heartwarming because they were actively trying to help each other and people would die. Like there would be posts, you know, so-and-so, this user has passed away. They OD'd, they're dead. And it would get to you. I mean, it was just like any online community. They just all happened to be heroin users and they were people. And it was really, uh, it was an experience being there and um, see another side of that way of life. One of the things I noticed in the book is how pervasive addiction is. So we have the main characters, but then we find out that the protagonist's father's second wife has been an addict. And we find this out about her when she has given birth and refuses to take any pain medication because she doesn't want to go back into that addiction cycle. And she becomes one of the most admirable people and most supportive people in the book. And then there's the brother of the mother of the protagonist's best friend who's in 
jail in Puerto Rico for drug-related offences. And then there's the father of a team member who has been in rehab three times. Is this something that you're aware of actually being the case? Yeah, for sure, especially in a small community. And of course, again, the story is set in a small Ohio town. And we all know someone at this point, especially in the Midwest. We all know someone or a friend of a friend or a family member or a friend's family member. And you can see it spreading like a a web. And it's something that you become intensely aware of when you're paying attention. I think that's another interesting point is that the father's new wife, the former addict, she's the first person that begins to realize that the protagonist, Mickey Catalan, has a problem. Even the protagonist's mother, Mickey's mother, who is a doctor, manages to not see the signs. Is that something else that is common, that one addict recognizes another? That I don't know. I I can't answer that one for sure. I can say that parents are often willfully blind. Uh, That's part of the problem. And it's also difficult because it is pervasive and because it can be the good kid that is doing drugs. It's not just the bad kids, the gross kids, the rough kids that are doing it. And so if you have your NHS student, your football player, and you think, well, there's no way that my son or my daughter is doing drugs. They're doing fine in school. They're, they play these sports. Like, there's no way. And that's simply, these aren't indicators of a drug user. I think it's more likely, I think, I don't know if an addict can spot another addict, but in this case, Mickey's behavior had escalated to a point that another addict could spot it and knew that she didn't have the flu, that she was going through withdrawal. So you live in a, in rural Ohio. There's a small town near to where you live. Do you see evidence of the opiate addiction there? You do see it. We lost a student when I was still working at the school. I can't say that it's widespread. I do know that it's everywhere. I do know that it's easy to get. So that's definitely something that I never would have believed growing up here that it would be easy to get heroin if you needed it or wanted it, but apparently it is. Actually, I did an experiment when I was writing the book. I said to myself, okay, I'm I'm going to see if I wanted heroin, how quickly I could get it. Two phone calls. Yeah. I called one person that I figured might know, and I said, hey, This is research for a book. I was just curious. If I wanted some heroin right now, would you be able to give me a phone number? And they were like, oh, yeah, I know someone. And they would totally, like, even bring it to your house. Yeah. Like pizza. Just a delivery. And it's cheap, too. That's the other thing. It wouldn't have cost me much money. I could have had heroin delivered to my house fairly cheaply within two phone calls and you know I don't move in circles where people are doing heroin but still if you're comfortable sharing what was it that made you call the person that you did call what was it about that person that made you think that they would know simply because it's someone that I grew up with that moves in and out of all circles effortlessly what kind of reaction have you had to the book from both teens and adults Lots of support. Lots of support. I've had many emails, of course, from adults saying, thank you for bringing this further out into the light. I've had emails from teens, a lot of them saying, you know, I've lost a friend or I have a friend. But the most touching emails and even face-to-face conversations that I have had have been with addicts, uh, former and current, 
that had said to me, you really got it and you nailed the feeling and you nailed the empathy. You know, like, you know, we're not doing drugs because we want to even at some point. And that is, um, you know, that's the crux of it. So another aspect of the book which really struck me was your characterizations of the various dealers that appear in it. How did you come up with those? There was a quote in Dreamland, and I'm not going to get it right, but there was a quote from a woman who basically had run out of her stash and she didn't get paid until Friday and she needed to get high and her dealer fronted her free heroin. And he's like, I know you'll pay me. I know you're good for it. And, you know, that's part of the insidiousness is that uh, this particular dealer, not all of them, but this particular dealer in Dreamland was presenting himself as your friend. And if you have that where you're not looking at a person that you're thinking, oh, this is a drug dealer, right? You're looking at someone going, this is my friend and my friend wants me to get better. By getting better, I mean when you're going through withdrawal, if you don't do more heroin, you're going to become more sick. And so the dealer would say, well, you know, we got to get you well. And so that's the kind of thing that I thought was just really stunning and interesting. Uh, the dealer presenting themselves as a friend and almost a caretaker in some ways. And you have a character that's exactly like that in the book. But you also have the character of Edith, who is effectively a dealer. Mm -hmm. But she bakes cookies and makes meatloaf and she kind of wants the people around her just for company how did you come up with that character just thinking about loneliness in general thinking about this older woman who has lost her grandchildren and her son through an accident and then has lost her husband just through natural causes and she's entirely alone and she's figured out that if she has oxy she can draw people to her and so She's drawing teenagers to her house and she wants to keep her house full. <laughs> She's also like, again, a caretaker. She's like, nobody's driving. You can't do drugs and then drive. Like there's this, you know, I'm going to take care of you. This is a safe place for you to do the things you need to do. And the exchange is that she wants their company. So in doing this research and you've written this book, do you see literature fiction as potentially helping people in this crisis? Well, I would hope so. Obviously, it's written for anyone that wants to read it, addict or non-addict. I think it's almost more important for people that aren't addicts so that they can understand what an addict goes through and have some more empathy because it's horrible. And everyone wants to say that it's a choice and maybe it is at one point, but it definitely goes somewhere where it is no longer. And that's hard for people to accept. And I understand that. But it is something that, uh, to my mind, after all the research that I've done and all the reading that I've done, is true. Absolutely. I was very convinced about that. So we're in this crisis. It doesn't seem to be getting much better. Have you any thoughts about ways of improving the situation? Well, it's interesting because that's not something I researched much about, simply because that's not where my focuses for the book um empathy always i mean that that's the most important thing is for people to understand that you know addicts aren't bad people um just that is huge punishment is not the answer longer crime sentences drugs are available in jail 
sending people to jail is not the answer. Uh, you know, getting them clean and getting them help. And one of the largest things with addicts is community, getting those connections that will help them stay clean, that kind of thing. More proactive building a world for them instead of taking them out of it. And uh, what are you working on now? I just turned in a first draft of a book that's untitled as of yet, but it takes many different elements of Edgar Allan Poe's short stories and puts them in a contemporary setting in uh, Appalachia. Is there anything you'd like to say that I haven't asked you about already? Not really. Um, I I think that uh, I just... I know that I write across a lot of different genres. I have written fantasy. I've written historicals. I've written thrillers. I've written survival stories, post-apocalyptic. And I adopt a different style for each book. And sometimes that is a turnoff for readers because when they pick up a writer, they want to know they're going to get the same thing every time. And I don't operate that way. I write something different almost every time, but always with a little bit of grit and darkness. So if you're interested in like honest, gritty truth, I think any genre of my books would work. So thank you to Mindy McGuinness for taking part in this podcast. And before we end, I should mention that besides writing YA fiction, Mindy also has a blog and her own podcast, both of which are targeted towards her fellow writers and aspiring writers. And they both appear under the title of Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire. A quick internet search will lead you to them, but you'll also find links in the information that accompanies this podcast. I'm Rachel Hopkin of Ohio Humanities. If you have any questions or comments, please email me at rhopkin at ohiohumanities.org. And note, there's no S on the end of Hopkin. Real Issues, Real Conversations is a production of Ohio Humanities, the state-based partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the National Endowment. This podcast is also made possible in part through the support of the Ohio State University's Humanities Institute. To learn more about Ohio Humanities podcasts and other projects, please visit ohiohumanities.org. The opening and closing music for this podcast was provided by Sokolovsky Music at sokolovskymusic.com. And again, you'll find a link to Sokolovsky Music in the information that accompanies this podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you.